We are already thankful in our hearts for what you have done. The, the finished work of Christ has been evident in this conference, that it continues to work in us. We thank you, Lord. We pray, Lord Jesus, now this last message that we have on the mountain that you would prepare us for our return into the valley. Strengthen our hearts, we ask. And Lord, this one last time we ask you if there is anything amiss. Maybe I'm even asking amiss right now, Lord Jesus. If there is anything, anything amiss in our hearts, Lord, we pray, Almighty God, that you would reveal it to us and our hearts would be ready to receive, to repent if necessary, and to return, Lord Jesus, to our labor in the valley, to our families, Lord, ready, ready to serve you, renewed and ready to serve you. We only have a little time. The time of the gentles will come to pass. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that we would not waste this time. In your precious name, amen. We're going to go into that chapter again. Matthew chapter 24. The mission we've been spending time on this chapter. It's a wonderful chapter, isn't it? Matthew chapter 24. The prophecy of Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus Christ's return. Matthew 24, and I'm just going to read a few verses to give you context, but I'm focusing on verse 31. I'll start from verse 29, and I'll read to verse 31. Matthew chapter 24, 29 through 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. The sign, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. Read that last verse again. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the one end of heaven to the other. Matthew 24, Luke 12, and Mark 13 are all called the Olivet Discourse, or the speech that was given by Jesus. It's the prophecy of Jesus regarding two events. Two events. They might not have known this at the time, but this is really, we know this now, this is about two events. The destruction of Jerusalem and the second coming of Christ. The disciples had asked Jesus about both. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3, they said, tell us when these things will be. They were speaking there of the destruction of the temple. Jesus has just spoken about the destruction of the temple and with it Jerusalem. Remember he said that not one stone would be left upon another and you know that's exactly what happened because when the gold melted in the temple the uh, Romans went into the stones to get the gold out and so not one stone was left upon another remarkable prophecy I must say. But they also said something else. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And the end of the age. So many of the verses in this chapter may refer to one or the other event. Or even, I believe, some verses refer to both. There's been a lot of arguments about this chapter over the years. Does this refer to uh, Jerusalem destruction? Or does this refer to uh, the, the, the end of the age. Which one is it? Well, I'll tell you something. They could refer to both. There are prophecies that are known as prophecies with multiple references. That means that they can have something for the near future and something for the distant future. Something for the near future and something for the distant distant future. I believe that the destruction of Jerusalem was kind of like an overture 
in an opera, an overture in an opera. Now, I'm not a big fan of operas. They're a little bit loud and a little bit long for my liking. Maybe you like opera. I hope I'm not stepping on your toes this afternoon, right? Maybe you like opera, but an opera begins with an overture, and the overture usually shows us something about what's to come in the opera. It has themes of things that are coming later in the opera. For example, the opera Carmen by the French composer Georges Bizet is quite tragic, right? But in the overture before the opera, there are tragic themes to show you what will come. What will come? And I believe that the Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem is a warning to the rest of the world as to what happens when you reject Jesus Christ. When you reject Jesus Christ. It's a tragic thing in a sense. What happened to, uh, to Jerusalem in, it was 70 AD when the destruction came upon Jerusalem. But these words of Jesus here, in this particular chapter, where there is much destruction, these words of Jesus give hope amidst these great warnings. There's a theme of hope, too, as well as tragedy in this overture of this chapter in Matthew 24. First of all, I would like to speak of what this might have meant to the early church, this particular verse, and what it means to us today, the common understanding that we have today. Before the final destruction of Jerusalem by the military leader Titus, who would later become a Roman emperor, church would escape. The church would escape the judgment that came upon Jerusalem because they had listened to the prophecy of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite theologians, Adam Clark, writes in his commentary, he says these words, This advice, the advice of Jesus, the followers of Christ took, and therefore they escaped, they escaped. The miserable Jews rejected it and were destroyed. Let us learn wisdom by the things which they suffered. Let us learn wisdom. Let Jerusalem be an example to all those that reject Jesus Christ. And because the church had heeded the warnings, the warnings of Jesus, this served as a testimony also to the rest of the world. Everything happened exactly as Jesus had prophesied. He never gets it wrong. He's a 100% accuracy rate, that's for sure. Jerusalem was destroyed and not one stone of the temple would remain on top of another. Not one stone. In Thomas Coke's commentary, he writes these words. These words right here, and hardly any one of these things contributed more to the success of the gospel than the destruction of Jerusalem, falling out in the very manner and in the very circumstances so particularly foretold by our blessed Savior. Everything happened as Jesus said as it would, and because the Christians escaped, they could be a witness now to the words of Jesus to the rest of the world. And that's what this could mean in this verse here. That's what this could mean. In our verse it says, and he will send out his angels. He will send out his angels. The word angel is often translated as messenger. Messenger in the Bible. For example, in Luke 7.24, John the Baptist's disciples are called messengers. It's the same word in the Greek. In Revelation 2 and 3, where it speaks of the seven churches, each church has an angel that serves as a messenger. And many people believe that these angels weren't literally angels or ministering spirits. These were the pastors of the churches, the messengers. So messengers were sent out after the destruction of Jerusalem. This distinguished Christians, these messengers from the rest of the Jews. Until this point, they were seen as just another annoying Jewish religion. But because these men had escaped Jerusalem, 
right? They were seen as witnesses to the rest of the world of what Jesus Christ had said. They were despised by the Jews after 70 AD. At this time, they, uh, for not standing with them in their rebellion, they wouldn't be involved in fighting against the Romans, right? They would not be allowed in the synagogues after this, Christians, because they refused to be involved in the fight against Rome. But what is the trumpet then? If that's the case, what is the trumpet? How could the early church have seen the trumpet, the great sound of a trumpet? And he will send out his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, of a trumpet. What is this trumpet that they would sound? We could say they played a trumpet overture, if you will, a a trumpet overture. In verse 31, and he will send out his angels with a great sound of a trumpets. The trumpets were first used by the Jews for two purposes in the wilderness. A trumpet was used for two purposes, to gather the congregation and for the movement of the camp. The Lord told Moses in Numbers chapter 10 and verse 2, make two silver trumpets for yourself. You shall make them of hammered work. You shall use them for calling the congregation, number one, and for directing the movement of the camps. They gathered together at the door when they were called of the tabernacle, when the trumpet was blown twice, twice. It says in Numbers chapter 10, 3 and 4, when they blow both of them, both of them, both of the trumpets, all the congregation shall gather before you at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. But if they blow only one, then the leaders, the heads of the divisions of Israel, shall gather to you. So what kind of things would these, these, um, that that second uh, gathering was just like a commission meeting or a board meeting, right? The leaders of Israel would gather together for that one. But what would the people all gather together for? What would they gather for? Well, one thing they would gather for is the new moon. There were messengers who looked out for a new moon, the first silver lining of the moon that appeared in the sky, and that would begin the new month, right? They would light the fires on the hills, signal fires, and then they would blow the trumpet twice, and they would gather, and they would make sacrifices. They also used them for Sabbaths. They used them for Sabbaths, right? The messengers blew the trumpet. Now, we blow the gospel trumpet, and the gospel is to gather, is to gather first of all. First of all, at that time, a messenger went out after the destruction of Jerusalem. These gatherings were no longer needed for sacrifice. They had a new trumpet to play, the the gospel trumpet, the good news. All of these righteous requirements like the new moons, right, like the Sabbath, all of these righteous requirements of the law were met in Jesus Christ who became a perfect sacrifice so they no longer needed to blow the trumpet for these kind of things. But now we are to blow the trumpet of the gospel, the trumpet overture of hope right, that was first sounded to the Jews. Remember, the gospel came first to the Jews and then it went out to the Gentiles. That's us. Remember that verse I quoted from earlier. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here, Paul is blowing the trumpet, isn't he? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. That's the rest of the world, or some translations say the Gentile, the Gentile, the Gentile. But we must also remember, we must also remember when we blow that gospel trumpet, there is also a second theme in this overture. It's one that is in sharp contrast with the good news that we can give of salvation. It's the theme for those that reject the Lord when they are given light. The trumpet was later on used when Israel was established as its own country. The trumpet would be used to give warning of the enemy. It was used to give warning of the enemy. For example, the prophet Joel said in chapter 2 and verse 1, blow the trumpet in Zion. 
Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. Here, Joel, the prophet, is telling the priests who were the messengers at this time, who blew the trumpets for the people to gather, that they were to warn the people of the sin that they were in and that judgment was coming upon them. Probably, probably here, here, Joel is speaking of the judgment that would come upon them by the Babylonian army, when the Lord allowed the Babylonian army to come in. They were to blow the trumpets. They were to warn people to repent, to turn from their sin, right? Or destruction would come upon them. And this is what we need to do as Christians. We need to give warning. We can't cut that out. If you cut that out, what you have is a watered down gospel, isn't it? A watered down gospel. Jesus gave warning to Jerusalem. He gave what Even on his way to the cross, He was more concerned about the Jews than his own death. Think about that. Because he was concerned about what would come upon them, not would come upon himself, right? He warned Jerusalem and they, Jerusalem, Luke 21, 24, will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations, all nations nations. Jerusalem would be trampled on, as he said, and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jerusalem would be trampled by the Gentiles, by the Roman army. It is estimated a million and a half Jews were killed, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian, and many were taken into captivity and into slavery. We don't preach so much on this, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It has significance for today. It is a warning to us. It's a warning to us. We need to be preaching on this simply because they did not believe in the words of Jesus. They rejected their own Messiah. And like I've said, we must give warning. We must give warning. When you blow the gospel trumpet, there is a theme that we need to play of warning. Jesus said, this is the gospel in a nutshell. You've heard it before. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creatures. But what did he said? He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. That's true, isn't it? We need to preach that. But there's a flip side to that coin, isn't it? If you don't believe, you'll be condemned, right? If you don't believe, but he who is disbelieved shall be be condemned. It's good news. Yes, it's good news. It's good news if you repent and believe. It's good news if you repent and believe. Like Paul, we cannot be ashamed of the entire gospel message. This is our time. My friends, this is the time of the Gentiles. It won't come again. This is our time right now to shine, you could say. I don't know how much longer we have to play the trumpet overture. I don't know how much time we have to play. But I want to focus this afternoon on the gathering of the elects. And he will send out his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they shall gather together his elect, those who respond to the call. Now, I simply believe this. This is what I believe. This is my position on this. I believe that the elect are those who repent and believe when they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what God ordained from the beginning, that all who believe shall be saved. Right? That is the elect. That is the elect in the parable of the wedding feast. It was those who responded to the invitation when they were called, that were called chosen. Right? The elect. For many are called, right? They sent, uh, they sent out messengers to a lot of people. Many were called. But only a few were chosen. Those who received the message when it came. That is, to me, as clear as day, who the elect are in 
the Bible. And Jesus fought, first called Jerusalem to gather to him again and again, but they were not willing. They were not winning. Remember those words. I've used those words again. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I imagine that Jesus had tears just pouring out of his eyes when he said these words. Oh, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often, how often, just think of those words, how often I have wanted to do what? To gather you, to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. You were not willing to become my elect. I chose you, but you did not want to be chosen. You did not want to be chosen. And for this reason, Jesus said in that same passage, it's the chapter before I won with a verse in it, Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37. Verse 37, it says there simply, see, your house is left to you desolate. Desolate, your house, or we could say your nation, which means Desolate means bereft or deprived of Christ's presence. Think, remember these things. You're deprived of Christ's presence. You're dis- deprived also. It also, means, it also means desolate to be deprived of his instruction. And it also means to be deprived of his aid or of his help. And this will be the same for all that reject Jesus Christ. Let Jerusalem be an example to us. Today, the overture has been played. We are now living in the opera. Right now, we are living in the opera. But when someone hears the trumpet call and response, there is then, listen to this very carefully, this is very important to the gospel, there is a desire to gather together. There is a desire to gather together. The word for gather here means to come together in one place as the Israelites would gather. It doesn't matter where the place is, by the way. We're not a religion of places, right? We gather together in one place. Yes, but it's for another purpose. It's not about the place. It's about the person that brought us together. That's what counts, isn't it? The Israelites would be gathered in the tabernacle, in the tabernacle right? It was an amazing thing. It was an amazing thing when those, the, those two trumpets blew, maybe I think it was just one blew and then the other blew, that they all gathered. There was over a million Israelites in the wilderness at this time. I don't think, uh, as Adam Clark said, that they could have all heard the trumpet. So some of them would have heard the trumpet, this is my estimation, here, and they would have to tell others and they would tell others and they would tell others. And that's what we should be doing today, isn't it? Hey, the trumpet's time to gather, brother. We're getting together. Right? We're getting together. We're getting together. Right? But why is there a desire to gather? Why is there a desire to gather? Why? When a lost sinner has responded to the call of Christ, he first goes to Christ. He first goes to Christ, right? But then, then, I believe this with all my heart, Once he has Christ, he goes looking for the body of Christ. He goes looking for the body of Christ. Why is that? Why is that? Notice that Jesus did not call just individuals under his wings, but he called a whole city, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I want a people, not a person, a body, a body, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How long? Jerusalem, right? No, um, those who come are not left desolate, like Jerusalem was left desolate. The unrepentant Jerusalem. We have number one, remember those three things. We have the presence of the Lord when we gather. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, what? There I am in the midst of them. We have the presence of the Lord. We have the presence of the Lord because we have not denied him. We have the instruction, the instruction, what do I do now? I have that desire to to gather, I come to the place because I want to know what do I do now? I am saved. I don't understand those kind of people who have had this kind of a religion where they say, "I, I can be a Christian, but I don't have to gather with other Christians. Where's the desire? 
the trumpet's blown and you're staying in the camp. Where's the desire? Where's the desire? We're a people that gather together in his name to receive instruction and his aid. His aid. I have been greatly aided at this conference. I don't know about you, but I have. Through, through the, the singing, through, through the praying, through the preaching. For the preaching. Thank you, Brother Travis, for, for being faithful to the word of God. I have been aided. He is an ever-present help in time of trouble. Isn't he? Our, God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. We come together to pray for that help when we're in trouble. Don't we? And I trust many of you have gathered for this purpose this weekend. But there is something more I want to show you. The early church had times of trouble. They had times of trouble, great times of trouble. And we're seeing these times once again. There is more persecution against Christians than any other time in history today. 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 Peter and John. This is just one example. They had reported back from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. They had been threatened not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And that's what's happening today. People don't, don't want us to speak in the name of Jesus. They don't want us to speak in the name of Jesus. You can talk about Buddha in the school. You can talk about Confucius in the school. But you dare mention the name of Jesus and you'll be in all kinds of trouble. There's a threat. We're under threat right now in America. To speak in the name of Jesus Christ. There's persecution to be had here of a, of a kind. Of a kind. But these men had been threatened by the Sanhedrin and told not to speak in the name of Jesus. And what was their response? When they needed help at this time, they came together. They came together with the church and they let the church know. And it says in Acts 4 and verse 24, if you want to turn there, Acts 4 and verse 24. We're going to be reading some verses from here. Said what, so when they heard, that's the church now, they raised their voice to God with one accord. One accord. We gather so that we may raise our voice to God with one accord. Accord, especially in times of trouble. What does that mean? What does that mean here to raise your voice in one accord? What do those words mean? One accord. They had, this means literally in the Greek, they had one mind and one passion. They had one mind and one passion. Now we're we're different people here, different colors, different cultures, different languages. Uh, different gifts, but there was something, there was something that gave these early Christians the desire to gather together. There was a passion that they had. They had a desire to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had a desire to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. They weren't all apostles. This time they weren't all prophets. They weren't all pastors. They weren't all evangelists, but they had that desire. They were determined, despite the threat, to spread the gospel in Jesus Christ. They had zero interest in this before. Before they were saved. They had no interest in blowing the trumpet. But now this had become their passion. And some of these Christians here, this is early on in the church, they'd just been saved. But they had that passion. To win others for Christ. Brother, sister, do you have that passion? If so, why not? Where is that passion? Where is that passion from the very beginning? We should have that passion. I get saved. I don't want to keep it to myself. i got to blow the trumpet. This is good news. I've got to share it. I can't shut up. No matter what the world says. The word fellowship, when it's expressed in St. John's First epistle means that Christians have this in common. They have the same mind as God and as Christ. They have the same mind of God. We are part of the body of Jesus Christ. A body is dictated to by the mind 
the head is Jesus Christ. Do you understand? So we have that passion. We have that mind of Jesus Christ. We share in his desires. We desire to gather together because we have this passion. Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. You only have two options. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. We're either gathering or we're scattering. You understand? And as Christians, we should have that desire to go to, to gather together, to gather together. I can go back to that analogy I used earlier this morning for the golden lampstand. There is a passion that we have that burns within us, right? I believe that that's the burning of the oil. It's from the Spirit. Yes, He is the oil. But that fire that is lit is the passion that burns within the church. Remember the candle, the, lamp, the lampstand represents the entire church. The entire church. I can't understand those who call themselves Christians, but are not one in mind who do not have this passion. This passion. Do you know that even in Mexico, I was criticized by so-called Christians for standing around at the punto and witnessing to these men. They said, what, he's doing, what is he doing here? Not even the cartel had told me that. But these people were claiming to be Christians. And they say, why is he wasting his time here at the punto? Where's their passion? Where's their passion? To see the gospel being spread, right? Where's the passion? It's what comes with purity. His passion. We talked about purity earlier. But listen to these words very carefully. In Titus 2 and 14, it says, Who gave himself, Christ gave himself for us, that he might redeem us, fr us from every lawless deed, yes, and purify himself, his own, purify for himself his own special people, yes, zealous for good works. People who are purified with a passion. To reach the lost. I'm not talking about being loud here. I like to preach loud. I understand that. But that doesn't mean that I have a passion. It's something that burns within you. It's something we have different personalities. But we can all express this passion for souls. For souls. Zealous for good works. I've always noticed the difference between those who play an instrument with passion and those who are just going through the motions. Those musicians that play with a passion are certainly the better ones, aren't they? Because they have a passion for what has been given to them. There will be resistance to the gospel. We know that. We're seeing it more and more, as I've already said. But these Christians had one thing in common. One thing in common. They desired to, as Paul put it, to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, to strive together for the faith of the gospel. I repeat, I'll say that again, to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, to strive together, to strive together for the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This was Paul's desire for the church in Philippi, when he came to see them, that they were striving together as John Wesley said, that means united strength and endeavors. They shared in the same passion together. They shared in the same passion. They were united on that one thing, was to win the lost world to Jesus Christ. To win a lost world to Jesus Christ. What are some of these enemies of the gospel? Let's go back to Acts chapter 4, if you've turned away from that. What are some of the enemies to the gospel. Let's look at the prayer that they prayed. We're going to start in verse 27. They're praying first here about Jesus because they knew that Jesus Christ faced resistance and they knew because he faced resistance, they would face resistance. In his death, he, he faced resistance. And they said these words in verse 27, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, that's the government. That's one resistance that we have today, more and more so, isn't it? You know, people say, well, I'm not Democrat, I'm Republican. I tell you something about Republicans, they're shifting. I'll still vote, but they're shifting. 
they're shifting. Somebody compared it the other day, and I think this is a fair analogy. It's like two wings of an airplane. They look like extremes, but they're taking us to the same place. They're taking us to the same place. Jesus faced the resistance of the government with the Gentiles. The Gentiles, I think, here represent the people who didn't know any better. Resisted them. Remember the Romans that crucified Jesus Christ. Remember the words of Jesus on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I think that he was talking there in the latter part of that verse about the Romans who were crucifying him. They had not the, they had not the scriptures like the Jews. So there are Gentiles who do not know any better and the people of Israel, those who do know better. I find this one of the hardest things to face. I was telling somebody earlier at lunch that I had to stand up in my own denomination in the Nazarene church and speak out about some heresy that had come into the church. And I faced much resistance, not from the outside, but those who claimed to be Christians on the inside of the, gospel, of, 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 the, of the church. And they removed me from that church. They took away my credentials to preach in that denomination because I stood out against false teaching. Yes, even from the Jews, even from Israel, those who were intended to be the people of God. The people of God were gathered together, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose to determine before to, to be done. Right? They gathered together. They gathered together. It amazes me, this. When I look at the scriptures, you have the Pharisees and you have the Sadducees. Complete opposites. One believed in the resurrection of the dead and the others didn't. They're always arguing about it. When Jesus came along, they all got together to oppose Jesus Christ. And even opposite will attract when they stand against the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will attract when they stand against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are seeing that today. We're seeing that today. But there was something. Why were they praying this prayer? Why were they praying this prayer? They'd come together when they'd faced this opposition. They had this threat. Why did they come together to pray? There was something, something they lacked. Peter and John had set the example. They had shown boldness. And I've heard that word this weekend numerous times. I'm glad you've already been preaching it because that's what I'm preaching on right now. Right, Peter and John had set the example. They had been bold in the face of the opposition. Even the Sanhedrin had noted in Acts 4 and verse 13, it says this, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. They had seen the boldness. Where did this boldness come from? From being with Jesus. But even they, the world, recognized that these men had a boldness. And this boldness comes from the Holy Spirit. We need to recognize that. Once again, I've seen one theme in all four of our messages today and yesterday. You know what that theme is? We need the Holy Spirit. And if you haven't gotten that, you haven't been listening, right? We need the Holy Spirit. It comes from the Spirit. They cried out to the Lord in verse 29. Now, Lord, look on their threats. You look on their threats. You can relate to their threats, Lord. You've been through this. Isn't it a wonderful thing that we have somebody who stands with us who's been through this? Isn't it wonderful? Jesus, Jesus, oh, sweet Jesus. Look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. They may speak your word. And if we're honest, my friends, if we're honest here, you may have this passion. That's true. As Christians, we have this passion. We've been equipped with this passion. But there's one thing that we lack, and that's boldness. Boldness to do this, especially in the face of the enemy. You've heard some stories about Travis and I and our exploits in Mexico. But I can tell you there are times before and after that incident on September the 2nd, that I was lying in my bed at night, awake, and fear had come upon me. Because I knew that that had happened just down the street. In fact, there was one time when I was passing that very spot and there were two guys with weapons that pulled out in front of me. 
And I followed them as I was going to my apartment. And they pulled over just before my apartment. And I pulled over in front of them. And I tried to walk into the house as innocently as I could. They had come almost to my very doorstep. And I didn't know why they were there. And fear began to creep in. And I had to get down on my hands and knees and said, Lord, I don't want this fear. Give me that boldness. Give me that boldness. Give me that boldness. There's nothing different about me and Travis. We're flesh and blood like you. We're no different. My boldness comes from the same person as you. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. And the Christians continued in one accord. Listen to this. Listen to this. This is, this is, this is wonderful. The Christians continued in one accord by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant. Your holy servant. Now, I want to understand something here. Travis talked about this a bit earlier. They talked here about signs and wonders. And I have nothing against signs and wonders. But we must understand that signs and wonders must be assisted with the unadulterated preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If it hasn't, then they're deceiving signs and wonders, as Jesus spoke about in Matthew chapter 24. I don't care if people are risen from the dead. If you're not preaching the gospel, I don't want to hear it. It's that important. We're so deceived today because there are many that do not have a love for the truth, as it says in Thessalonians. We're deceived. We're deceived. There's a sign and a wonder. We say, wow, a miracle has been done. God must be working and somebody's preaching abomination. I don't care about those miracle workers on TV. You can do all the miracles in the, in, in the world. Remember on the day that Jesus returns that there were people becoming to him and saying, Lord, Lord, I did this in your name. I cast out demons. I spoke prophecy in your name. I did signs and wonders. And Jesus is going to look at them and say, I never knew you. Away from me, you workers of iniquity. You never repented of your sin. The devil can deceive. The devil can deceive. What's the important thing here? What's the emphasis in this chapter? Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. What happens? What happens now? Do they go out and do miracles? Put their phone number on the screen? Right? No. It says this. What? And they spoke the word of God with boldness. They spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart, one heart, one soul, right? One passion. We need to remember that. When the trumpet is blown and the people come together, can turn a city upside down, can't they? If they have boldness, we could turn a city up. These, these, these 12 apostles, they turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. Why are we seeing that today? Where is our emphasis? Where is our passion? Where is our boldness to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? The trumpet blew with passion and in the power of the Holy Spirit after this. It was Paul's witness to the church. Remember that many were afraid of Paul when he became a Christian. Why? Here's the man that watched the the, the clothes of those that stoned Stephen. He was dead set against Christ, right? But he had been radically changed and people didn't believe it. What was his witness to those early believers that this man had been changed? It was Barnabas that said to them, or Barnabas, it says here, took him and brought him to the apostles. And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus Christ. That was his witness to the church, to the church, right? Let's remember this church. Listen, Jesus said in that main passage where we find our verse, listen to these words, heaven and earth will pass away. Heaven and earth and everything we depend upon with them in this world will one day pass away. But what does he say next? But my words by no means will pass away. The things that we preach for Jesus with that passion, with that boldness will never pass away. Will never pass away. Understand that. This is what is important here. First of all, not the signs. 
not the signs. It's that the gospel is preached with boldness. That's the only thing that will matter on that day when we stand before Jesus Christ as the church, as his lampstand. That's what will matter on that day. Praise his name. But finally, let's look at the common understanding of this verse, the common understanding of our main verse, which is more fitting as we grow closer to the coming of our Lord. And he will send out his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Listen, my friends, the gospel trumpet will one day be silenced. And there will be a final trumpet. Remember, there were two trumpets that were played. One had two, one had one sound. Right. But when there was one sound, there was movement in the camp. It was time to move on. And one day, that final trumpet will come and there will be movement in the camp, right? In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, what will happen? For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. That trumpet, the last trumpet of all, the word of the Lord remains forever. Right at that moment when the the trumpets sound, all the elect, those who responded to the call, will be gathered by his holy angels. I am talking now of the ministering spirits. The ministering spirits, those who gather together in this life with one mind, one passion. In other words, those who are already gathering will be gathered together. Will be gathered together from all parts of the world. Listen to these words. I love these words, brothers and sisters. First Thessalonians 4, 15 through 7. For the Lord himself will descend. From heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet, there you go again, of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together. There is the gathering with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. We will be gathered together forever. Why don't people want to gather today? Why would you want to gather together forever if you don't want to gather together today? I'm spending eternity with you, right? Praise God. But I believe also that this will be followed by a gathering of those who wouldn't gather before when the trumpet was sounded. I believe that that gathering comes next. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 12. These are the words of Jesus here. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 12. His winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Chaff was separated from wheat simply by throwing it in the air when there was a wind or by using a winnowing fan that would blow the chaff away. You see, chaff won't be gathered that easily but wheat will, it will fall to the ground together. You see the difference? Chaff would not be gathered. It's blown away. And what is the fate for chaff? Those who would not gather. When the trumpet sounded, the fate is the fire. The fate is the fire. I'm not going to mix my words this morning. Time is too short for that. I'm not going to play a false tune. There's only one place or the other. The one place or the other. The most important thing, when that call to movement comes, the most important thing will be this. When Christ comes with his holy angels and that trumpet sounds, is did you have a passion to gather together before? Are you already gathered? Are you already gathered with other Christians? The church is important to God. 
We've demoted it, haven't we, in our thinking? We've demoted it. It has no purpose. It's an option on Sunday morning, isn't it? It's an option. I'm gathering with brothers and sisters because I have a passion. I want to share, share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And when opposition comes, we need to pray together for, 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 the, for the boldness of the Holy Spirit. But either way, we've got to get it out. We've got to get it out. This is the time of the Gentiles. This is it. The clock's ticking. You can see the things that are happening around the world at this moment. I'm not going to get into the signs, but it's looking fairly obvious, isn't it? Time's running out. Gentile time is running out. We need to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. The opposition is going to grow greater. It's going to grow greater, but we have to grow stronger, bolder in our witness. He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they were to gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Listen, brothers and sisters, you might not have exactly the same view as me on the end times. And I'm not sure what my view is sometimes, but I do know this. I do know this, that there is coming a gathering day. And we need to be ready. We need to be ready. Do you have that passion? Number one, if you don't have the passion, there's a spiritual problem. I know how difficult it is. Not everybody has the gift of speech. Not everybody has that. It doesn't make me better than you at all. I'm no different. I've got the same passion. Different gift. But we need to pray together. I need boldness. You need boldness. So we're going to pray together. I want to continue on the same theme right now to pray for boldness. Ben asked me at the very beginning of this conference, the very first thing he said to me, I said, can I pray for you? He said, yeah, pray for boldness. I thought, that's, that's great. That's great. Here's a young man with a passion. He's got the passion. He's in the right place. He's gathering with Christians, but he needs boldness. You need to pray for him. And there are others too, let's be honest. We need boldness, church. We need boldness to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ.